0: All right, let's get to it. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter nine. We've been moseying through Matthew. It's been a slow process, but it is the gospel and it is important for us to really take in everything Jesus is doing. And in uh, the last several weeks, we've been looking at Matthew chapter eight and nine, which describes 10 miracles uh, in, in their detail. And it's, it's really cool to see these. And Matthew handles things, uh, differently than the other gospel writers, as we've seen a little bit, even on Sunday, compared some of, uh, uh, Matthew and Luke. And then also we've looked at some Mark, uh, the way he kind of tells us different stories and there's a, there's kind of a nuance, but Matthew tends to clump things together. And so he clumps these 10 miracles in chapter eight and nine. And uh, we've been looking at that. Miracle number one, just in review, we saw the cleansing of the leper, chapter eight, verses one through four. And um, you know, that, that kind of speaks of the repulsive sinner who nobody wants anything to do with, the outcast, the outsider, um, and how the Lord cleansed the leper. It would have shocked the people of that day to make that be one of the early miracles of Jesus. Um, the second one we saw was the healing of Centurion's servant um, who had, was sick of the palsy. Um, And Jesus starts ministering to Gentiles. This was a shocker as well. Another outsider. Uh, Why help a Roman centurion? He's the enemy. But isn't it interesting that Jesus sets the tone for that as well? The third miracle was the healing of Peter's mother-in-law there in Capernaum. Uh, um, Also uh, shocking that Jesus would care for uh, a woman in a day where women were not treated very well. But Jesus will always be seen being very, thoughtful and compassionate and considerate for uh, women. And I love that about Jesus. Uh, Miracle number four was the calming of the sea. We saw that in Matthew chapter eight, verses 23 through 27. And uh, he said, peace, be still and the water. Just was still an amazing thing. And miracle number five was the casting out of demons. Uh, Remember the deviled ham story that we did on a Sunday morning? Uh, The legion that went into the pigs and all that stuff. Uh, And it shows Jesus has power over the evil powers and principalities and what have you. Uh, Miracle number six was the uh, healing of the sick of the palsy. Chapter nine, verses one through eight. Uh, We looked at that recently. And, um, And then... Um, we, we get ready to dive into uh, the, ne- the next you know, three or four miracles, uh, but before that, there's a few sideline things. Last Sunday, we saw the calling of Matthew, um, and we, we met Matthew uh, in the story, in the narrative, and we saw that. If you missed that, that's the calling of Matthew, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. We looked at that. Um, but before uh, getting into the next miracle, the disciples have a question, uh, and it's kind of an interesting question. Let's take a look. It, um, it, let's, let's back up just a little bit in verse 10, uh, just to kind of get everybody caught up where we are. Verse 10, it says, It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat, or for dinner, in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with them and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth, and I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I, will, uh, I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's the stage being set for now a group of disciples to come and ask Jesus a question. Now, what's interesting is they're going to ask the same questions the Pharisees asked. Uh, Why is Jesus, why are you eating with publicans and sinners? Um, These guys might even ask, why are you eating at all? Uh, Who are these people? Well, these are John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, They were famous for eating nothing, uh, fasting. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples were fasting. And John the Baptist was known for, you know, not running around having falafels and stuff like that. He was having locust bugs for dinner. I can just picture what a wild and crazy guy John the Baptist must've been. You know, the hairdo and, and bug legs twitching between his teeth and, and eating wild honey and wearing camel skins. Like The guy was a, a, kind of a wild man, but he was an amazing man uh, nonetheless. But now his disciples, uh, they come to Jesus and, and you gotta give these guys a bit of a break. The, you know, The disciples of John were way out in the wilderness uh, with John, and John wasn't going to the crowds. John was not a guy who would be seen in a feast with a bunch of publicans and sinners, and so you kind of have to understand why John's, you know, John the Baptist's disciples are like, uh, "We got a question for you." Um, but but notice the tone and the difference in the question. This is big. This is a big deal. You and I as Christians need to to discern this tone. Um, is the person asking a question sincere? or is the person asking the question just trying to be purposefully cynical? Uh, the Pharisees, their, their question was cynical. Who do you think you are eating with publicans and sinners? And Jesus kind of gives them the what for? Uh, I've not come here to you know, heal those that are well, but for those that are sick. And he kind of gives them a pointed answer. But now with these guys, Jesus is actually gonna give an entirely different answer. Um, so which answer is right? Well, they're both right, but they're directed to two different people. Let's see how it goes here. It's, uh, it, we pick it up kind of right here. And by the way, on this, on this, before we get into this, um, notice how people ask questions, and I want you to be sensitive to that. I, I feel that people unnecessarily uh, don't discern you know, the troll versus the person who's very serious and really wanting to know something, especially if you're online, if you're a social media beast. Watch out. A lot of people waste a lot of energy and time, I'm afraid, online trying to defend things biblically. And there's, there's people that just go around trying to be cynical. Watch out for that. It reminds me, you know, um, you know here in Matthew chapter 9, it, it's the same thing you have to discern. Are these Pharisees or are they the disciples of John? Um, you know, it's something we kind of have to sort of take a look at. In fact, in Romans chapter 1... Um, it tells us a little bit about the, these people in Romans 1, 21 and 22. It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became as fools. This is the group you kind of have to watch out for. The people that are just cynical and purposefully darkening their own eyes. They don't really wanna know the truth. They've purposefully become vain in their own imaginations. And we've got a lot of that going on in the world today. In fact, in the colleges and universities, uh, it's running rampant and has been for decades, you know, questioning faith. Even if your kids, parents, if you're sending your kids off to Christian universities, be careful because it's real trendy right now. And even in the Christian universities to not confirm your kid's faith, but to question it. Uh, Demolishing faith is, is what a lot of these schools tend to do. Kids go out, with more questions than they do answers. One of the things I hear from, you know, uh, some of our faithful uh, online listeners and some of our churchgoers is, you know, man, when you just read through the Bible, you get answers. And I'm thankful for that. I love that we, we, as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible, we get answers from God about the days that we're living in. Have you noticed how relevant the word is to the day we're living? It's an amazing thing. Um, but you go to a college, even a Christian university. Uh, uh, I was told the other day that, um, that George Fox in one of the classes that the, the, the teacher was talking about, You know, some churches you gotta really be careful of, and they listed a few of them, and, and uh, one of them was uh, Athey Creek. Watch out for that Athey Creek. <laughs> Meanwhile, there, were, there was a staff member uh, of Athey Creek in the class, and I <laughs> thought that was kind of funny. Um, but, you know, they, they, they say watch out for that atheist Greek because, well, they, they've taken a very liberal theo, theological stance on a lot of things that it's just kind of wacko. They've lost their way as a college. Um, and, you know, if you wanna get good theology at George Fox University, go to the math department. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not kidding. Like, like the, the logical math and engineering departments, all those profs, I'm told, are really squared away and they're really solid dudes. Uh, but you go into the psychology department, run for your life. And maybe even the theology department, that's the sad truth. Um, It's hard to find a good Christian university anymore that actually isn't teaching, you know, questioning rather than confirming. In fact, uh, the, the trend right now is Christian deconstruction. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a, kind of a big deal now. And, um, you know, how's the modern church gonna je- address the, the, the deconstruction that all these younger people are sort of saying, we're gonna deconstruct the, the, the faith of our parents, of our pastors that we grew up with, because they can't be trusted. And um, so there's this big movement of deconstructing one's faith. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, they'll rebuild it again. But sadly, that's not what's happening. Um, I believe um, so many the reason so many Christians are rejecting faith today is because they probably never had a strong foundation to begin with. Do you understand that? Man, it's so important for us to have a strong foundation in our faith. And our foundation begins with Jesus. And our foundation ends with Jesus. Your foundation shouldn't be Athe Creek. And it shouldn't be George Fox, God forbid. Um, your foundation should be jesus and and remember in the beginning it was the Word the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the living Word, and we have the written word this is it, this is our foundation, and that 's the way people get rooted and grounded, but sadly, so many people are growing up in in churches where they don't really teach the word or they they do a few verses here and there, fancy verses, fun verses, the ones we like, but they don't really go through the Bible anymore. And thus, I'm worried that there's never really a genuine, solid, biblical faith that was there to begin with. We've got to watch out for that. Be careful. Make sure your kids are rooted and grounded in the word of God and have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Um, not just an academic knowing about Jesus. Um, and, and by the way, if your faith is weak, what's the best thing you could ever do? Yeah, read the Bible. Uh, you know, for faith comes by hearing and what? Hearing by the word of God, man. So what you guys are doing tonight, just getting in the scriptures, it builds faith. Uh, and um, and if your faith is rock solid, you will have no interest in deconstructing your your faith. Uh, no demon could convince you to tear it down because you're, you're building your house upon a rock. By the way, <clears throat> man, I'm off course already tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, uh, you know, there's so many, so much information that's misinformation and, and people are questioning so many things. But, you know, the things we should be questioning, we're not, uh, you know, like for example, so-called, you know, uh, science. Uh, I'm more and more amazed that we're saying, did you see this article, uh, Euro Weekly came out with, uh, I think it came out in August, uh, um, where these scientists, a big group of uh, scientists, uh, professionals from across the world declare there is no climate emergency. Um, Hundreds of scientists and professionals from across the world led by the Norwegian Physics Nobel Prize laureate, Professor Ivar Guy Aver, I'm not sure that's how you say his name, declared that there is no climate emergency. On Thursday, August 18th, an article by the World Climate Declaration, WCD, proclaimed that there is no climate emergency, which appears to have been scrubbed from the internet, uh, was uh, re- retrieved by the Wayback Machine and began gaining traction on social media. Scientists should openly address uncertainties and exaggerations in their predictions of global warming, while politicians should disagree Dispassionately count the real cost as well as the imagined benefits of their policy measures. The group said, um, "This is something we've all been very, you know, suspicious of for a long time." But you know, there's been legitimate scientists saying, "Come on, uh, really? Are you getting me?" And it's interesting how that's starting to come out more and more. And I think it will. But it reminds me of what you know Paul warned Timothy. He said, "Oh Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings." and oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee, amen." Um, so it's, it's oftentimes the universities and the colleges that claim to be the place of science and the place of wisdom, but they've become fools uh, in their science, falsely so-called. Uh, watch out for that, that, that's what we're seeing today, science, falsely so-called. That's the reason um, that we have to ask the question, what's the motivation behind the questions? that are coming our way as Christians? What's the, what's the reason? Uh, remember in Matthew chapter 7, verse six, it says, "'Give not that which is holy unto the dogs, "'neither cast your pearls before swine, "'lest they trample them under their feet "'and turn again to rend you.'" So as Christians, we need to discern, is this someone who really has a legitimate question, who wants to talk about something for real? Or is this a person with a beef who's trying to make a point and could care less of what you you have to say? Um, I think you should be careful about that. So, So the Pharisees were kind of the cynical ones and Jesus hammered those guys. But let's take a look at what the disciples of John say in verse 14. It says, then came to him the disciples of John saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast off but thy disciples fast not? Good question. Uh, Similar question to the the Pharisees. Why why is Jesus eating with publicans and sinners? But the the John's disciples, why why are your disciples eating, period? We don't do that. Why? Because John the Baptist dudes, man, they're out in the wilderness fasting, and now he sees Jesus and the disciples had a big party eating lots of food. You kind of have to feel for those poor, starving John the Baptist disciples. I'd much rather be a Jesus disciple (laughs) um, because they actually ate food. Now, notice the answer Jesus gives here. It's quite interesting. Verse 15, and Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Interesting, Jesus is making the point that men, you guys are fasting, John the Baptist's disciples, rightly, because the bridegroom wasn't there. But the bridegroom is here now, it's time to rejoice, it's time to feast, it's time to be glad. You don't need to be fasting when you have Jesus there. Um, this is such an important, uh, it's, you know, you know, the disciples of John weren't asking Pharisaical, you know, um, we're miserable in our fasting, so why aren't you guys miserable in your fasting? There's a true wondering, what's going on here? Like, this is different. Your whole ministry is so different than what we're used to. Help us out here is what John the Baptist disciples And the thing about fasting in the Bible, it's always linked to mourning, sadness, and even difficulty. Um, Why do you fast? Well, we looked at this when we were in the book of Isaiah. We talked about it. We talked a little bit about it a few weeks ago um, when we talked about, you know, uh, fun with fasting, I think was the name of the sermon that we did a few few weeks back. But why fast? Um, the, the Jews would fast because they were mourning, especially during captivity. Remember in the Babylonian exile, they would fast and pray. They would also mourn because of their sin, fasting and mourning because of sin. And then they would also fast, and this is a big Jewish thing, because the Messiah hadn't come. They, they believed that they should fast and pray for the coming of the Messiah. So John the Baptist Uh, during the intertestamental period, uh, was fasting and praying for the Messiah to come. That's what those disciples are doing. So when they they say, why aren't you and your disciples fasting? And Jesus says, because I'm here. I've arrived. Uh, uh, There's no time for fasting. It's time for feasting and celebration, not fasting. I think this is great because... It really, it really answers the question so differently than what the Pharisees were talking about. You know, They were worried about the sinners and the publicans and all that, but the disciples are like, man, you guys are ministering so different. Um, now, this, this sort of reminds me to talk about the, the ancient Jewish wedding. And I, I've gone over this in detail in times past, but let me just quickly remind, especially if you're newer with us here, um, one of the greatest things that helped make, connect a bunch of dots when you're reading the Bible is the customs of the Jewish wedding. You know, you kind of start with two youngsters being brought together, whether that's by parents. Usually it was an arranged sort of marriage uh, by the parents. And the parents would make a deal. Once in a while, there's historical evidence that a young couple fell in love and then their parents did the business. But uh, the parents make a deal in the giving of gifts. Um, There was the betrothal period, we've talked about that, and then the engagement period. Uh, And the betrothal period could happen when they were really young. Um, and But it's almost as good as if they're married just without the, the consummation of the marriage. And so there was this waiting in the uh, betrothal period. Um, now, a dowry, uh, the bride price uh, would be given, but also the groom to uh, uh, bride uh, with the family. Uh, there was a Hebrew name for that. The mohar is the price the groom would pay for the bride, you know, and, you know, four camels or whatever. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll see a bunch of... Uh, Palestinians uh, in the streets, uh, and they'll say, I'll trade you four camels for your wife. You know, They'll say that all the time uh, as you're walking down the streets of Jerusalem and stuff. Um, and uh, we had a, almost an argument with some of the ladies because one lady was offered two camels and then the other lady was asked for four camels and then they're like, hey, <laughs> they offered four. For, uh, don't take that too, too much to heart. But, um, but after the pi- price has been paid, guess what happens? The groom goes back home to daddy's house and starts working, building the house. Um, you know. And, and in, in, in the Middle East, they do this today. If you go to the Middle East, you'll see a lot of structures of homes that go up, 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 and then there's rebar sticking out of the roof. And you're like, oh, it's so unfinished. Uh, that's, that's the way they roll there because they just say, well, our son's gonna build his house on top of our house. So they already have the you know anchor bolts and the rebar and whatever uh, ready to roll to build the next layer up. Uh, but the son goes and prepare, I'm gonna use this language intentionally. He's gonna prepare a place for his bride. Um, and guess what? Nobody knows when the wedding's gonna be except for one person. Does anybody remember who that is? The father. Because the father watches the work of the son. And when the work of the son is done, then the father gives the green lights as you are finished. Uh, it's time to go get your bride. Now, the interesting thing about the poor bride, she's, she, she's gonna be shocked. She doesn't know, again, choice of words here, she doesn't know the day nor the hour of when the bridegroom's gonna come and get her. So she can't just be eating cherry bonbons and watching Days of Our Lives all day. <clears throat> you know. She's gotta be sort of ready uh, when the bridegroom is gonna come. And so the bride waits and she, by the way, fasts and prays during that time. Um, but the bride's supposed to be ready and to be ready to be ta- taken away. Well, what, once the father gives the green light, suddenly the trumpet, the shofar is blown and the, the party, the, the sort of a uh, entourage of the groom's friends go down and they go to the bride's house and pick up the bride. And then they take the bride and carry her on the shoulders all the way down the street into the, the house of the father Um, and uh, where the groom has prepared a place for his bride, his house, and they go in and do a seven-day party, uh, the marriage feast. Uh, And they would uh, spend that day. Now, awkwardly, I gotta say, uh, the bride and the groom would go off in the bride chamber and consummate the marriage. Everybody else outside is... (laughs) They're just having a great time, you know, busting a move and eating lots of food and everything. And then the bride and the groom come out and they're like, yay! It's like they've consummated the marriage. It's kind of a weird deal. But... (laughs) Um, but that seven day feast, uh, you know, the party, uh, is kind of the, 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 it's sort of the done deal. Now the imagery there is clear, the bride of Christ, that's us, the church. Um, we don't know when the bridegroom is going to come for us, um, but he is coming. The bridegroom is Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. Um, uh, w- you know, accepting the proposal, uh, is accepting Jesus. When you accepted Jesus, you're saying, I want to be the bride of Christ. Um, and then you know what was the price the groom paid for uh, his bride? Well, he paid it all, didn't he? He died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. The mohar, and by the way, the mohar price is talked about all throughout the Bible. I can give you tons of verses. First Corinthians six twenty talks about the the price that was paid for you. Uh, first Peter one eighteen and nineteen, and First John three one, all, um, all talk about the price. And there's many other scriptures, but. Um, but 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 20 he says, "'For you are bought with a price, "'therefore glorify God in your body "'and in your spirit, which are God's.'" So you've been purchased, that's what the Bible teaches. So what is, what is the Lord doing? You've been purchased, you've been, the mohar has been paid, but Christ went to go to, he said, "'Let your hearts not be troubled, "'I go to prepare a place for you.'" He's gone to the Father's house to prepare a place for his bride, that's us. Um, I think it's gonna be awesome. You know, Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. And in six days, they, the Lord built the earth, the cosmos. But he's been preparing a place for you for the last couple thousand years. It's gonna be glorious, the place that the bridegroom is preparing. So the father's timing, Jesus talks about how no man knows the day, nor not even the son of man, but the, it's the father who knows the day and the hour. So the snatching away of the bride is a picture of the rapture of the church. And we get to be taken up with Jesus. And then we're in the marriage feast of the Lamb. How long is the tribulation period? Seven years. How long is the marriage feast? Seven days. I think that's gonna be a seven year. Remember, a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years with the Lord is a day. So we've got this glorious picture in the Bible of the marriage feast. Now, this is really important because all this plays into a lot of why you and I do or don't do certain things as a church. For example, why don't we keep the Seder dinner or the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles? Why aren't we, you know, now some of you might, and you might, uh, I noticed that there's, even in this church, there's people that kind of do that stuff and and the question is why do you do it? And that's a big question because it's okay if you do Passover dinner, that's great. The question I would ask is why? if you're doing it because you think we should be keeping the Passover. And you're not as spiritual as we are if you're not keeping the Passover. You see, this is kind of an important thing. It's it's sort of the same thing John the Baptist's disciples are asking when Jesus says, should the bride mourn as long as the groom is standing right there? And the answer is no. So confusion on, on what we as a church should or shouldn't do kind of starts to get interesting. In fact, keep your finger here and go with me to Colossians chapter two. This is a big deal. Colossians chapter two. Take your Bible, maybe a quarter inch to half inch to the right, to all the eons. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians chapter two. There's an interesting discussion that Paul has to have with the, the Judaizers the people that were trying to make Gentiles into good Jews, practicing Jews. And he argues this point in Colossians chapter two, verse 13. And he starts off talking about the sinful condition that the people are in. In Colossians 2, 13, it says, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So uncircumcision, that's the Gentile people. Verse 14, blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances, um, which is our death sentence, the law, uh, that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And now verse 15, having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing, triumphing over them in it. Now verse 16, it says, let no man therefore, because of all that, because your price has been paid, because you've been saved from the laws and the ordinances of the Old Testament. It says, uh, because of that, therefore, it says, let therefore no man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Um, Then it says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. and." worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered and knit together increased uh, with the increase of God. What's going on here? Paul's saying, you know, to these uncircumcised Gentiles who were saved by the cross of Jesus, don't let people judge you, therefore, concerning the new moon uh, and the feasts uh, he's blotted out the ordinances um, in drink, in meat, uh, respect of a holy day or the Sabbath days. These are all the festivals and feasts of the Jewish traditions. Um, why should we not have to do that as Gentiles? The answer is really clear: because Christ is in His church, Christ in you, which is our hope of glory. We have Christ. The Jews still don't. Largely, the Jews have rejected Jesus, the Messiah. But as a Christian church, we have Christ in us. So it's like, you know, the reason they were supposed to keep the, you know, the Passover is to point forward to when Jesus, our Passover, would come and take away the sins of the world. First uh, Corinthians 5-7 tells us, for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Jesus is our Passover. So you and I don't have to do a Seder dinner or a Passover dinner because Christ is our Passover. And then he makes this analogy of, the, of verse 17. These things, the Sabbath days, the new moons, the feast, the festivals, they are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. In other words, the Jews, they only had a shadow of who Jesus would come with their Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, the tabernacle itself, the temple. All of those things were only a shadow of the real deal. Once Jesus came, it's the real deal. This is what John the Baptist's disciples are gonna to have to learn, that the disciples, they don't have to fast when Jesus is with them, because guess what? Um, Jesus is with them. They don't, there's no reason to fast when the bridegroom's there. In the same way, the church, we don't have to um, you know, keep those feasts and vessels. Now, if you do the Passover, because you love what the Old Testament spoke of and the pictures and, and illustrations and imagery that points to Jesus and, and you like to see that and, and even experience that as the Jews did, but for the goal of saying, just we're just enjoying the shadow part too, but we actually don't even need that. That's not even a requirement, we have Christ. That's that's a pretty uh, important thing here. Uh, so don't let anybody, by the way, beguile you on this one, as the scriptures say. Uh, you know, if they say, you better keep a Passover feast or else you're not truly a Christian. We had a movement at Athey Creek for a while with some people that were sort of laying Judaism trips on Christians saying, you see, the Bible says, better keep the, va-. they just didn't do their real reading of the Bible, and uh, and so, that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. And that's why we don't do certain things. By the way, do you have to fast? No, you know, we're not under the law, um, but is fasting a good idea? The Bible does tell us. Yes, it is. And we, we talked about that. If you're curious, we talked about that a few weeks ago. Well, all that day, notice verse 15, back, back to Matthew. It says in verse 15, um, it says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and they will need to fast again. When is that gonna be? That's a good question. Um, you know, when's that, what's that day? Well, it, it's possibly one of two days, and I'm not gonna be dogmatic one way or the other. Some would argue that um, he's speaking of when the disciples saw Jesus die on the cross, and when he was buried, um, then they would have to fast again because the, the bridegroom's no longer with them after Jesus died and descended first before he ascended. So some people argue it's that. Others say, nope, it's, it's when the rapture of the church happens. When the rapture of the church happens, we're up with the Lord. That's, we meet him in the air, that's the rapture. And then we're taken to our heavenly honeymoon in, in heaven with the Lord. Um, meanwhile, back on the earth during the tribulation period, that'll be a time where the Jews specifically will need to be fasting again during the tribulation period. So there's usually two schools of thought about when Jesus is talking about here in verse 15, there's coming another time where the bridegroom is gonna be taken away. Was it when he died and was buried? Or is it when the rapture comes and the church is taken away? Uh, Maybe both, who knows. Um, But um, uh, fasting is valuable. But one thing you have to also understand is as a Christian, fasting will not usher in the kingdom. There's nothing you or I can do to make the kingdom come other than we can pray like Jesus taught us, pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But um, one of the big mistakes, there's a dominion now, kingdom now theology movement. It's been around for a long time. It's gaining steam in some circles where some people, some Christians think we're gonna usher in the kingdom. And how do we do that? It depends on who you're talking to. But a lot of them take a very political, have have you seen the extreme political churches um, that, you know, they have uh, people coming up and speaking that are on the, on the ballot, uh, you know, politicians coming and speaking in front of the church. Why would a church have a, a politician come? The answer, I don't know. Um, but actually, a lot of those churches are people that, that kind of believe that we have to usher in the kingdom and elect Christian officials. And we've got to stop abortion and we've got to stop all the bad, evil things that are going on so that Jesus, we can usher in the kingdom. And my answer to that is, How's that going for you right now? It's not working out very good. And the Bible doesn't really teach that. The Bible teaches things are gonna get worse and worse. And then the kingdom of Christ is gonna come. Uh, and that's when he returns. Daniel chapter two talks about that kingdom coming. Remember the big statue of the nations, uh, the gold of you know, Babylon and Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. And then the, after the Roman empire would come, uh, part iron, part clay, toes, 10 toes. During those 10 toes, kingdoms. Um, would come a stone, listen, that was cut without hands. Um, that means it didn't have human cut. It was just a stone cut, but not, without, not with hands of man. The stone comes rolling down and smashes the nations. And then that stone becomes a mountain. And, it, and then the interpretation was given to Daniel. That's gonna be the everlasting kingdom that God is gonna set up through his son, Jesus. That's not us making that happen. Um, the Lord's gonna do that. So be careful on this whole kingdom now or dominion theology. A lot of churches have taken that. Uh, and it's, I think it's, it's really discouraging if you're trying to see real change happen politically or you know doing, thinking that somehow we're gonna usher in the kingdom. I don't believe that's at all the thing. Uh, the Lord's gonna come when the Father uh, declares and that's gonna be the, the end of it. So back to Jesus' answer, Did, uh, didn't need to mourn, didn't need to fast because the Messiah was with them. And then he goes and talks about how there's kind of a new thing going on. Um, And I might call it a thing, or uh, some people will will controversially call it a dispensation. Um, I believe in the Bible, it's very clear that there are dispensations of time uh, that the Lord ordained. Um, And and for example, um, there was the dispensation before Jesus came and died on the cross, where uh, the law flourished and it was the Jews trying to live by the law. But once Jesus died on the cross, wouldn't you agree? It kind of changed the whole thing. We're no longer under the law. The law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Jesus. And no longer do we, or even Jews who are suddenly saved and accept Jesus, there's a whole new time period or dispensation. Um, And this is what he's talking about here in verse 16. He says, no man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put to fill it taketh up from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Okay, so this is the first analogy. Um, And a lot of us aren't seamstresses, so we don't know what they're talking about here. Uh, But let's put it down in basic terms. You got a nice pair of Levi's, one you love, and you don't wanna throw them away because there's a hole in the knee. So what do you do, get a brand new patch of denim? and then you sew it onto that old washed out Levi hole, that won't work, and I'll tell you why. Because you'll sew it on the right size of the already pre-shrunk old Levi's, but as you wash them over and over again, the new patch will start to shrink, and it'll rip out, and you'll have a bigger hole in your Levi's than you did when you started. You need to start with an old wash. You gotta use the old Levi's with the old Levi's. Otherwise they don't co is the idea. And that's what Jesus said here. He says, uh, you know, it'll make the garment even worse. Then he gives us illustration number two, wineskins. Check it out, verse 17. Neither do men put new wine in old bottles, else the bottles break <clears throat> and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles or wineskins and both are preserved. Now, this is, again, something we don't do every day in our culture, so it's a little mysterious, but it's this. If you take new wine and put it in a new wineskin, then that wine goes through its processes of fermenting at the same time that the, the wineskins or the, the skin itself is still pliable and stretchy. And, but then as the wine grows older and ferments in there, it sort of seasons with the wineskin but an older wineskin starts to become very brittle and more crackly. Uh, and it's, it's more prone to cracks and holes and breaks. So you don't, you just keep the, the same wine in a, in a, you know, that was put in the original wineskin. If, however, you take an old wineskin, you already drank the wine and you pour new wine into old wineskins, that, that new wine will start to ferment and the, the gas or whatever that's let, let off of the fermentation pro- process expands and it starts to crack the, the old wineskin. It doesn't mingle. You're gonna ruin the old by putting the new in. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the, the way times are changing um, and you don't wanna cram old things into new stuff um, because they don't commingle and, and you'll actually hurt So you got the old pair of Levi's, you got the the bottle or animal skins, new wine. Um, Jesus is explaining the change, if you would, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, One dispensation to another. Um, uh, And uh, dispensation just means time period. Um, The Old Testament, old garment, old wineskin, New Testament, new wine, new wineskin. Um, The Lord is saying the old covenant, the old dispensation of the law was ending and he had not come to uh, project it uh, on or to continue under that dispensation, but have a whole new thing, uh, saved by grace through the faith in Jesus who dies on the cross. That's the new dispensation. Um, And he he comes with a new garment, a robe of righteousness. I love that. Uh, Like Isaiah would talked about prophetically, shifting from the law shifting to grace. Are you guys with me on that? That, That's this whole wineskin uh, analogy. You can't mix the old with the new. It's time for the new, the new dispensation. Well, now uh, we come to the next section here in verse 18, and this is miracle uh, number seven, um, healing of Jairus's daughter. Uh, It says this in verse 18. While he spoke these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler um, now, we know this is Jairus, by the way, from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he, his name's not mentioned here in Matthew's account. But he's a certain ruler and worshiped him, saying, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she shall live. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Um, now, there's a couple things here. Um, he's a ruler of the synagogue. Probably in Capernaum, that's where Jesus is doing all of these miracles, most of them. Um, Now, who's the ruler of the synagogue? He's the guy who decides who should teach in any given synagogue. Have you ever wondered where did the synagogues come from? Because they sure didn't come from really the Old Testament law. If you go to the Old Testament law, um, where did the Jews worship, anybody? The temple in Jerusalem. And they had to make their pilgrimage and their journeys there. It was quite a tedious deal. So where did this whole synagogue thing come from? It came from their time in captivity when the Jews couldn't, uh, could no longer go to Jerusalem under the Babylonian, you know, in 586 BC when all the Jews were driven over to Babylon. Um, during their Babylonian captivity, they, they started the practice of setting up little synagogues. Um, they weren't fancy in Babylon, um, but they would meet together and a Jewish sort of rabbi or teacher would start teaching Torah and uh, teaching the Jews of their own uh, law. Um, and then once they came back from captivity, they brought their synagogues with them. And then they built these f- nice synagogues, fancy synagogues. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, they had fancy synagogues, like in Capernaum. There, there's a, I showed a video a few weeks back of a synagogue that Jesus actually stood on the very foundation. There's a, there, by the way, there's a really cool synagogue that they found several years ago that we go visit in Magdala. Um, you know, Mary of Mag- Magdala. Um, Mary Magdalene, uh, well, the, um, the, the synagogue they found there, it really is of the same time where Jesus was on the scene. And, and it's one of the synagogues you know Jesus went in there because the narrative, he went to a lot of the synagogues in that whole Capernaum region. So it's kind of a cool new find in the last several years. But um, that's, so the judge of the synagogue or the ruler of the synagogue was sort of in charge of that synagogue. He would also be a decision maker for the community and also a judge for community disputes. Uh, The ruler of the synagogue was often wealthy as well. So this is this guy, wealthy ruler, respected leader. um, And he comes and says, Jesus, come and heal my daughter who's dead. Now there's question about this language here. And by the way, for you that uh, wanna know know, the, the details, was she dead or was she on death's bed or at the point of death? The language here is a little tricky on that one. Um, we do know Jesus raises people from the dead, so that's not, uh, that's not in question at all. Can he raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? Yes. But is she dead at this moment when the, the Jairus comes? That's, that's what you kind of have to be careful with, um, the language here. But, um, but, but basically all this to say, Jairus is risking even talking to Jesus. As a ruler in the synagogue, Jesus, who's already hated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for Jairus to even talk to Jesus He's risking it. Why does he risk it? The answer, because his daughter. Um, Mark, Mark tells us that his daughter is 12 years old. Man, his little 12 year old daughter is dead or dying. Um, and you know, sometimes it takes hard things to bring, bring people to Jesus. Uh, some of you came by hard things. It, you know, you, you didn't want anything to do with Jesus until you went through a real tough thing. Um, but let those hard things bring you to Jesus. He's the answer for sure. So sometimes it's hard to bring people to Christ. Sometimes the Lord will bring them through tragedy and trials. So by the way, this is interesting. Um, So we've got the miracle of Jairus' daughter coming, but then this miracle's interrupted by another miracle. So hold on to the miracle number seven, uh, put a pause on that one, and go with me to miracle number eight, um, which we're gonna call this the healing, uh, the woman with issue of blood. Check it out. Uh, it, It says here in verse 20. And behold, a woman which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. But Jesus turned him about and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Now, when we get into Matthew chapter 14, we're gonna, <clears throat> we're gonna see uh, more about this um, as we get into this. But, um, but also in the other accounts, there's, there's more detail given. But, um, but you know, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus senses virtue has gone from him. He's just walking through a crowd. Remember the way Mark puts it in there? He's like, someone touched me. And the disciples are like, are you kidding me? You're in a crowd of people. Yeah, people touch you. And he's like, no, no, no. Virtue is gone from me. Jesus sensed something happened there. He didn't just, you know, uh, um, blow that off. Now, here's a question that's kind of curious. Um, was this woman's theology correct? Was her understanding of Jesus right? I think the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. She, she's, if you kind of hear her logic, she says, um, for she says within her life, if I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. Now you say, well, Brett, she did it and it worked, so she was right. Um, but, and you could say that, I'll give that to you. But here's the thing, the hem of a garment, this is something you and I miss in our culture. We don't really care about the hem of our garment, except that your pants aren't dragging on the dirt. Uh, the hem doesn't mean anything. In Bible times, the hem of one's garment meant everything. It was sort of your place where you were sh- kind of showing who you were. The hem had meaning and it gave authority and what have you. Um, this is why, remember when David cut the hem of Saul's robe in the Old Testament? That, that was an insult. It, it wasn't that he just cut the hem and said, I'll cut off a chunk of his garment. It was the chunk of his garment that was sort of a symbol of Saul's authority. Um, it's sort of like um, a military, You know, like when they wear their medals um, this one kind of cracked me up. Um, even North Korea uh, hasn't fought much for wars in many years, but their generals are decked out with medals. Uh, did you see this? this? This is a true picture right here. Um, presumably for propaganda purposes. Look at those generals. Look at all their exploits. You know. Um, and then I think somebody else, I think Babylon B or somebody, added more to their pant legs and stuff. There's a funny. There's a funny picture that's fake. Uh, after that one. But, but that's, if you could watch, picture sort of walking up as if I could only touch one of those medals of the guy there, then I shall be made whole, which sort of spoke of an authority and what have you. But she doesn't really even need to do that. It's, it's, it's sort of a superstition um, of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood that she's employing, a superstition of the authority of the hem. And the point that I'm making is not to knock the woman that her theology's off, but I I just wanna point out that she still got healed. Even though she didn't have the proper understanding of what the hem really means or how important it really was, it was more important that she just knew and touched Jesus. That was the deal. Uh, It wasn't all about the hem, it was about just Jesus. And the reason I say that is the Lord is so gracious. I think the Lord heals us and blesses us even though our theology may be off. Or you're not having a pure understanding, um, you know. Um, the the point is, uh, she touched the end of the hem of his part, uh, garment, and the Lord just chooses to graciously uh, heal her. I love that. Um, by the way, the hems would often be colors and designs that would be linked to your lineage, uh, and to cut that off would be highly disrespectful, like in David's case. But she believed, like others at the time, there was power in the rabbi's hem. It was a superstition theologically off, but Jesus still heals her. Do you believe uh, in superstition? You know, the Lord is gracious and he still blesses us, even though we're stupid sometimes, but be careful on this. You know, you you come to a Sunday night worship and you you lift your hands, finally you say, okay, I'm gonna lift my hands, I'm going through really hard times, and so you lift your hands. and. And you sing and you worship, and then you go home, and man, your problem solved. The Lord blesses you. You're like, wow, that's awesome. So the next Sunday night, you're like, now, how did I lift my hands again? Like, was I, was I doing the wash the window or carry the baby? Uh, how was I doing the carry the TV, uh, fly the airplane? I don't know. Which one was I doing? No, don't be superstitious about stupid stuff like that. Um, the Bible says lift up your hands in the sanctuary, bless the Lord, whether you're getting stuff for it or not. Um, but sometimes I think we convince ourselves. Well, I went to Sunday night and I did this, and I took communion. And I lifted my hands, and man, that was the the, the um, you know recipe that was for success. That's all superstitious stuff. Um, the Lord is powerful, and He can do whatever He wants, however He wants. Um, be careful about this. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, notice this. Uh, now, this 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 might be too much. I'm I mean, going to admit, uh, but but I, I find it curious. And, and you don't really get this if, unless you do a comparative study of the gospel because I told you in Mark, the girl that's being healed here from death, Jairus' daughter, 12 years old, this woman has an issue of blood for 12 years. What's the what's the deal there? Why do we have two 12s? In the Bible, numbers do seem to make a difference and kind of have an importance. Um, is there a meaning? Maybe not. But I'm just gonna throw it out uh, um, for just consideration. There's two 12s in the story, one, um, had been struggling for 12 years and the Lord helps her. The other was doing great for 12 years and just now is going through death and difficult, but the Lord still heals her, even though it's a sudden problem. Um, so maybe there's a point to this, to compare the two, saying one, one's been suffering for 12 years, the other just has an instant problem, but Jesus fixes them both. I like that. But I wonder if there's maybe a symbolic um, uh, question or connection that's prophetic. Um, you know, 12 years for both, the woman uh, and the girl. Um, and uh, the girl, by the way, uh, is interesting. Jesus, uh, who is he called to, to raise? Um, in the Bible, uh, in fact, 18 times in the Old Testament, um, uh, the daughter of Jerusalem is called. Now, there's reason to believe that this woman that touches the hem of his garment is a Gentile. Um, and it has to do with how she had to press into the crowd, and, and there's, we'll, we'll talk further about that as we get into some of the other gospels. But the woman with the issue of blood was probably an outcast, just like all the other people we've seen so far. She had no other way to do it, so she sneaks in and tries to touch the hem of his garment because they wouldn't let a Gentile do that. So you got this woman who's a Gentile, but you got this daughter who's a Jew. We know because her dad is the ruler of the synagogue. Um, and maybe I'm making too much of this, but you remember how, like, for example, Zechariah 9.9, 9, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king comes to thee. So en route to heal the daughter of Jerusalem, if you would, a Gentile was saved. I think this is an interesting picture. Now, maybe that's too much to, to make it, but that's actually what did happen, isn't it? Um, en route to save the Jews, guess what? The Gentiles are saved. Paul struggles with this. Remember how Paul just so desperately wanted to be the minister to the Jews, but the Lord says, Paul, stop ministering to the Jews. You are the minister to the Gentiles. But I wanna minister to the Jews. And every time Paul would go and minister to Jews, he'd throw rocks at them and throw them over, like, like, you know, beat them up. And uh, and then he'd go minister to the Gentiles and thousands of people would get saved. Like um, the Lord says, you're a a Gentile minister. On the way to saving the Jews, the Gentiles get saved. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing. the importance of 12 in the Bible is kind of key. 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel, four and 20 elders, uh, which is kind of interesting for the 24 elders. But um, you know, uh, all that to say, that's just food for you guys that are Bible students to maybe chew on a little bit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make the big point of that other than I just find it interesting. Um, so do you, do you have the faith of this, this Gentile woman to just touch Jesus and believe, man, he can heal me. He can heal my, my problem. Um, you know, and, and I like that she, this woman was willing to push through the crowd and do a little work to press into Jesus. Sometimes I think Christ, people sit around, I'm open, if God's gonna help me, whatever, we'll see what happens. But this woman actively gets up and she presses through the crowd and she touches Jesus. I think sometimes the Lord honors that when you press in and draw near. That's what the Lord does. Um, what kind of a crowd do you need to push through is maybe the question to ask. Crowds of doubt, or peer pressure or your business or distractions of this life, you need to press through that and go and touch Jesus. She pushed through, Jesus healed her. Um, later, people would try to get healed by touching Jesus's hem from hearing this story, by the way. So kind of interesting how this is gonna come back. Now, this brings us back to, so, so we, were gonna, we were on the way at house to Jairus's daughter's house uh, on the way, the woman with the issue of blood gets healed. So that was here, uh, you know, number eight. But let's go back to miracle number seven, because we're not done with Jairus's daughter yet. So pick it up in verse 23. It says there, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, um, he said unto them, give place for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. So now, you know, she's officially dead. And the mourners are there. In in Jerusalem, they had professional mourners. You know, it's like when you had a wedding and you bring the DJ. In Bible times, when somebody died, you hire the mourners. And these professional mourners come and they play music, you know, that very sad Jewish music, you know, all in minor key. And they'd sit there and wail and mourn. That's what they were doing. But Jesus comes in, ah, she's not really dead. She's just sleeping. And these professional mourners, like, they hear that, they're like, that's funny. (laughs) Oh, like they're, they're, they're just faking, you know, mourning. And suddenly they're laughing Jesus to scorn. But I love this. This is great. Verse 25. But when the people were put forth, put out, he went in, took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. Um, Jesus, I love how he puts them forth out. He puts the, 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 the scoffers out. Um, so the, you know these mourners are putting on a show, the morning show, um, <laughs> and they're they're mourning and they're they're just putting on a show of it. And then and then when Jesus comes and says she's not dead, they stop their mourning and laugh Jesus to scorn. Um, don't let people laugh at you when you're a person of great faith, uh, because um, man, the Lord has done great things, and we have great reason to put our trust in the Lord. Um, when Jesus is doing a work, sometimes you need to clear out the, the scoffers. And uh, this is throughout the Bible. Um, do you remember the story of Nehemiah as they were building the wall? They had to put, put down the scoffers uh, and get them out because they were trying to discourage the people from building the walls. Like there's a, there's a theme in the Bible of putting out the scoffers. And we can talk about that. We'll see this in greater detail in Mark chapter 5 verses 23 through 43 when it talks about this this same uh, story of healing of Jairus' daughter. Well, that brings us, what are we on? Miracle number nine, the healing of the blind men, verse 27. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, thou son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said unto them, believe ye that I am able to do this? And they said unto him, yea, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened and Jesus straightly charged them saying, see that no man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. Don't you love it when Jesus tells me, now don't say a word. And everybody goes, and I've got news. It's like, uh, go to the New York Times or whatever. Uh, These people, they often do. Now, now, uh, question, how did the blind men follow Jesus? I mean, they're blind. (laughs) I'm not trying to be mean here, but they're blind men. How did they follow Jesus? Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, there's something about Jesus that everyone in the world has access to. I I want you to know that because, the, the Bible's clear on this, and I'm not being lighthearted about blindness. I'm just saying, here's this blind man, these blind men who are still trying to follow Jesus. Did they follow the sound of the crowd? Um, or or did there, was there a sense? I don't know, but um, I love what John 1, 9 says. That was the true light, Jesus was, which lights every man that cometh into the world. Jesus lights every man and woman, I might add, that comes into the world. That's, a, that's something the Bible says. Um, there's a light somehow that everybody can see. Even the most ardent atheist um, can see the light, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, or will have access to that light. Um, you know, uh, even in creation, I believe the the no one will have an excuse. Whether you're a blind person or if you're a pygmy living in Papua New Guinea. You won't have an excuse. Romans chapter one, verses 19 and 20 makes this clear. Because that which may be known of God is manifest or made known in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So even though these men couldn't see Jesus, they could see him, his light. They, they could get him, and there's no one on the planet that will ever have an excuse saying, well, I never really knew Jesus. Um, well, Brett, what if there was no missionaries that came and told them about Jesus? Even creation, uh, for the invisible things from him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. So no one will have an excuse. The light of God is evidence in some way to all. So when people ask that question, What about the pygmies if they die and they never hear the gospel? Even they will be held accountable to some degree. You know, I believe that the Bible gives us a hint that there's going to be maybe a different level of accountability for what you've been given. And you may not be able to, you know, give the hermeneutical dispensational principles of the New Testament. But if you're a pygmy in the South Pacific and you believe that God created the earth and there's a certain understanding of God and his light and Uh, I believe there's a point where God's gonna hold a person accountable to what they've been given. I see that, by the way, in Luke 12, 48. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given of him shall be much required. And whom uh, men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. There's kind of a rule here, and this this verse has kind of a different context, but it's still a rule. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. So even in blindness, Jesus is the light that these guys follow. I love that. Um, I think that's cool. And they have a belief. Notice their faith in Jesus, in the healing of the blind man. They, they call him the son of David. That was a term that would have been employed for guys that believe that Jesus was the Messiah. We see that in verse 27. And again, you have to ask, do you believe Jesus can help you out? Like these guys had the faith and Jesus did. Um, question, why does Jesus always say to these guys, don't say any word about this? Um, uh, I think he was number one, keeping a low profile. at least trying to, because why? Remember the phrase, mine hour is not yet come. What hour? The hour of his death. Jesus knew the more people, the word got out, the more there'd be animosity and anger and even people wanting to kill him. Um, and that, and that he, he was working the timing out. So that, that might be one reason. But also, I have another one that I'll throw out to you, why Jesus said you don't have to go and tell everybody about these miracles. How many times does miracles produce real faith in the believer? Have you thought about that? Like when you read your Bible, are there a lot of people, well, I saw the miracles, so I believe in Jesus. And that, Did that produce real faith? Um, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as it turns out, I'm not sure great faith comes from seeing miracles. Some of you believe, if I could see someone raised from the dead, then I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But as it turns out, there's people that saw the Red Sea parted, they still didn't believe. They, you know, like all those Jewish miracles of the Old Testament, it's amazing, all these amazing miracles, and yet, did that really produce faith within the Jews? No. In fact, of all the, we're going I'm getting ahead of myself here, but Jesus is gonna curse the very town where all this is happening, the town of Capernaum. Do you know why? because of all the miracles he did there, they still chose not to believe in him. The town itself. And he said, it'd be better for you than the, than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's better for them than for you guys. And he cursed Capernaum, Bethsaida and Chorazin, these cities of that region, because they saw the miracles, but they still didn't believe. And what's amazing to me is this beautiful spot in Israel, one of the most beautiful spots in all of Israel, in my opinion, is Capernaum and it still lays in desolation to this very day. If I were a you know, wealthy person, I'd build a resort. They need resorts on the Sea of Galilee. Their hotels are too old and run down. And they need more good ones there. Uh, there's a need for that. But nobody's building a hotel in Capernaum, why? Because it's cursed by Jesus himself. Uh, there's nothing there except for archeological ruins of the first century town of Capernaum in the most beautiful spot of all Israel, in, in my opinion. That's just part of what happens. So the tendency to see miracles, but not actually hear the message and have faith in Christ. I, I don't think that miracles ever really produce faith. That might be another reason why Jesus said, yeah, don't tell everybody about this. Well, quickly, we're running out of time. Miracle number 10, we're on it. Here we are, the, the healing of the possessed dumb man. Uh, oh, the poor guys, don't call him dumb. No, uh, he couldn't talk. Uh, this is King James language. So in verse 32, We finish up this chapter, it says, and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. Um, This is now another devil demon possessed guy Uh, and he can't speak because of the demon possession. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and the multitudes marveled saying, it was never seen, never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisee says he cast out devils through the prince of the devils. Good logic there, right? Uh, you realize when people are trying to make a case against someone, usually their logic starts to sound pretty la- uh, lacking of real logic, uh, kind of insane. He's casting out the devils with the devil. Um, verse 35, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So we get the 10 miracles told here um, but, but we know that he does a lot more. There's countless miracles. Um, now he's accused of casting out devils by the power of devil. You say, bro, are we gonna talk about that? We will further on this in chapter 12. We'll see the same accusation just in a couple chapters and we'll dive into the, this, a deep dive into that. Well, in verse 36, it says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Don't you love verse 36, that Jesus looks at the world with great compassion? You know, Jesus knows all of these people. He knows all their problems. And you know, um, if I knew everything about you, would I be compassionate? Or if you knew everything about me, would you be compassionate? Are you compassionate tonight for people that are down in Florida? You know, I think sometimes people are like, well, you know, you build your house down there on the sand. Uh, (laughs) Jesus said something about that, hello, sea level. Um. <laughs> uh, why build your house in a hurricane? We build our house in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> but you know, I, I, do, I do wonder, you know, we might have a moment of compassion, but like to have real compassion for people. I mean, tonight, like there's a lot of people that might be, you know, oh, Brett, it's just a little rain and a little wind down there. Uh, who knows, uh, they're saying it's gonna be the big one. Uh, and a lot of times it isn't, and, and, but sometimes it is. And uh, this is all pointing to really causing a lot of damage. But um, in the same way that Jesus was moved with compassion on them, I wonder if we should perhaps work on that because Jesus has always seen being compassionate for people. And that's something you and I should be good at. If Jesus was good at that, you and I should be good at it. So we should be praying for the people in Florida or anywhere else on the planet that's in trouble or going through difficult times, to have real compassion on people. Um, what about the people that are in tents around Portland? Are we compassionate or judgmental? Well, if they wanna have fentanyl and be homeless and druggies, then let them die in their tent. Like there, there's, there's people around here that kind of have that attitude. Um, but I believe Jesus would be moved with compassion on those people as well. That's, that's the way he rolls. So something to think about um, with, when it comes to that. Now he goes on in verse 37, and we're almost done. It says, Then saith he to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Question. Who are being harvested here? Anybody? Anybody wanna say? You were harvested? That's good. I was too, me too. Um, the reason I ask that is because you might be shocked that there's actually two different harvests the Bible talks about. And you should know this. Um, there's the harvest uh, of like, like us that are followers of Jesus that have been harvested in the, in the way that somebody shared the gospel, we got the Bible, we accepted Christ, and we've been harvested in the sense of the fields are white with harvest and, and the laborers are few. But there's another harvest that you should be aware of in the Bible, and that's the harvesting. Well, let me, um, let me just read it to you. Uh, this will be shocking to you. Um, Matthew 13, 37, we'll come to this in a few weeks. He answered and said to them, Jesus, he that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world." Did you know there's a harvesting of those that are gonna be harvested for God's wrath? Well, Brett, I don't know, that's the harvest uh, that's being talked about. We'll also check out Revelation 14. Another angel came out of the temple uh, which is in heaven, and he also having a sharp sickle and another angel came out from the altar which had power over the fire and cried with a loud cry to him that had a sharp sickle saying, thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe and the angel thrust in a sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. There's a harvest for you. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> should have a harvest festival. Uh, now you say, Brad, what you, what's your point? My point is this. Um, there's two different harvests talked about in the Bible. One is a harvest unto salvation. The other is a harvest to damnation. Um, and you and I, I the reason I, I point this out is because you know, we should be busy about the harvest of salvation. We should be out looking for people to share the gospel with. And this has been a theme as we get into the gospel. We've been talking about this a ton. Uh, Salt and light, be uh, witnesses in this world, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Um, Did you know there's a statistic that they say, uh, Barn, I believe, did this one. 98% of Christians never regularly share Jesus with other people. 98% of Christians never share Jesus with others. D.L. Moody, uh, a woman, he was an evangelist, a preacher, a great, great Bible uh, evangelist, a woman didn't like his methods of evangelism. She, and um, and uh, so she told him that, I don't like the way you do it. And Moody, I said, what's your method then? And she says, well, I don't have one. And then Moody said, well, I like mine better. <laughs> Moody was known for those kind of things. We got to realize the time is right. And you may not have all the technique down or be, you know, really good at it but it's time to get out and harvest and sh- share the good news in the gospel. Because if you don't do that, there's gonna be other people that'll be harvested for the wrath of God. We don't want that, nor does the Lord. So let's do it. Let's be busy about the Lord's work. Amen? Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this passage. These 10 miracles of chapter eight and nine remind us of your awesome power and that you have compassion on people. Give us that same heart, Lord, that same compassion on those that are hurting. Uh, Lord, we take time tonight to lift up those in that hurricane down in Florida, Hurricane Ian. Pray that, Lord, um, you would cause all people to draw near to you. Lord, in these times of trial, sometimes these are good times to have people realize that you are the hope that they have and that you are the one that they can put their trust in. So use this to your purpose. But we do pray for blessing and safety and um, Lord, that you just cover that area down there be particularly with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we know we even have watch parties down there tonight uh, that may or may not be watching, but we pray blessing upon them and their homes and safety. Uh, Lord, specifically, we just put, put them in your capable hands. So bless this evening as we go our way. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name, amen.